Welcome to the first Mustard Australia podcast. We're going to do these podcasts with each of our uh, newsletters when we release them. Uh, at the moment, we're releasing them every uh, three months. So today, we're interviewing my father, Carlo Dwyer. So Carlo Dwyer uh, is a very well-known farrier, uh, trotting trainer, as well as a horseshoe manufacturer in the past uh, within Australia and New Zealand. So, Carl, welcome to the this first podcast. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, today, we're going to uh, touch on the, Carl's history, how he got involved in horses, um, how he got involved in, in shoeing, uh, and then also developing uh, the business and uh, as well as well his farrier business his training business as well as the manufacturing business and then also life after uh, manufacturing and, and selling their no-dwire horseshoes which is now mustard australia so dad how uh, the first question uh, that, that we had was uh, how how did you get involved with horses what was the the first thing in the early days that attracted you to horses up there in your murka well, my father, I was one of eight boys and one girl to start with, and my dad dad had a farm uh, back in the, um, must have been the 40s, and and uh, and then the late 30s, early 40s, and the... Um, Where was that farm? Up at a place called Cobrawonga, no, it, was it Cobrawonga or Makata, Makata. At just out between Katamatite, Yarrawonga, and Cobham. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, and how many acres did he have? I think, from memory, he had about five hundred acres. Yeah. Five hundred acres, and and um, he's he and his brother were left the home property, which was a, a, a square mile, which was six hundred and forty acres back there then in a square mile, and it wasn't big enough for they didn't think for two. Uh, uh, two people to make a two families to make a living out of so they decided that dad would buy a, another farm and, and his brother would help him pay for it and unfortunately the depression came and nobody had any money and of course dad dad was owing money so he lost his farm and all he got out of it was a team of horses a plow and and then he had to buy some a scoop and a wagon and so forth and he went into he went into making irrigation channels for the State Rivers and Water Supply Commission. That was, the irrigation system was set up for the boys when they returned from World War II. Uh, as you can imagine, there was no jobs, they were unemployed, they'd given the best years of their lives overseas fighting and so forth. And the government decided they had to do something to, to uh, give them a, a fresh start in life and give them some direction and some sense of well-being and so forth. So. What they did, they took big properties, people that had two, three, four thousand acres, which up in northern Victoria and places like that, there were some big properties owned by families for a long period of time. And what they did, they put the irrigation through from, uh, in our part of the world up there, Cobram and Yamurka and so forth, they put it through from Yarrawonga, the Weir at Yarrawonga, and, and they broke up the big properties into hundred acre lots and, and the soldier settlers would apply and and they would take either a dairy farm or or a fruit farm. It just depend on what the what the uh, the soil was considered best for. They did they did tests and so forth. And look, it was a very very successful 
uh, venture for the return servicemen and uh, a lot of them made a really good go of it and, and uh, had families and, and it was a god saver, saviour for these boys coming back from the war. So what did uh, so what did you, your dad do? So wh- well, what was involved? How many horses? What was his yeah. uh, job? What what happened was that to bring the water down, they had it was all done with teams of horses, ten horse teams, and scoops and ploughs. So um, all they, Clydesdales, all, Clydesdales. all heavy horses. Yep. Not so much Clydesdale, but heavy horses. They were draft horses. They yep. called them. They were a mixture of cross of Clydesdales and so forth. The big channel coming from Yarrawonga that you see on the Yarrawonga Cobram Road, it, it's a huge big bank on either side of the channel and it's massive. And they, the, the, um, it was so, so deep and, and such a strain bringing up the scoop up onto the top of those banks to tip the soil and get it out and get it up on top that they lost for every mile there is of that big channel, there's a dead horse, a horse that had dropped dead in a team and they had two blokes one on each bank and he had a half yard scoop a small scoop with two horses in it and his job was if a horse dropped dead he'd come along for a rope and put it around his neck and take the winkers and the hanes and the and the collar off him and he'd pull him out and then they'd put another one in and it sounds ruthless and barbaric it was tough and hard times but those horses did a huge job a huge job. None of them were ever shod because they were never on hard ground. They were only ever on dirt and uh, or clay or sandstony country, that sort of thing. But it, their feet never wore out. So they wouldn't need trimming? They'd trim them to start yep. with, and, and but they kept trimmed down because if they come across a bit of sandstony country, it would wear their feet back a bit. Yeah, but they never had to be shod. And what was the? How long would uh, would one of those horses last in the in the team? Oh, dad had dad had his team for probably I reckon a good ten years, and and um, they the teams they'd get there to set it all up. They 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 put the outside fence around the, well, around the blocks, the square mile, that they pull all the internal fences down and they just leave the outside fences up. And then that's why when you see every channel up there that's been made by the horses is, is half a chain back from the road. And the reason for that is you've got 10 horses side by side and they had to turn. So the fence was there, so they had to shift the channel in. You lost that bit of ground from the channel to the fence. So half a chain is how much in metres? Oh, right. For us metric people? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I'm, I just got to learn feet and inches and some smart bastard changed it to metrics. Um, well, a chain, 22 yards of the chain, so, so that's um, 66 feet, isn't it? So that's, that's um, 22 yards... I think it is to the chain. So it's about 20 to 21 metres. So, so it's like about that. 10 metres, 10 to 11 metres. Yeah. 10 to 11 metres, 10 yeah. to 12 metres or something like that. Did you ever get to, uh, to, to drive the team of 10? Yes, yeah. When I was 13, uh, my brother Brian and I, we, he was 14, I was 13. And in school holidays, we'd be breaking our neck to go out with Dad on the, on the, um, working on the scoops and, and the ploughs. And Brian was always a bit smarter than me or a bit more cunning than me and he'd I'll do the ploughing and ploughing you only had to walk half as far because you just went up and back a few times but scooping you had to go up over the bank come down to the cut get and dad had had the scoops and he'd load up the two yard two yard scoop it was a lot of dirt in it and he'd have to on skids and he'd load it up and pull it back and then go up onto the bank up onto the ground level and then up onto the bank and tip it 
and of course you were walking uphill and down there. I'll never forget one day I was, was getting about, we'd knock off at four o'clock, it was about up past three and I was going up the cutting and we're down probably about six feet into the ground and going up and I was letting the horses, they only had reins on, on the two horse on the outside, on the near side and the offside. So you had one rein on the two outside ones and they were all tied together with a strap on the, at the bridle. And, and, and most of it was done by command. Dad would just say, gee off, gee off, come here, come here. And when he'd say gee off, the horse would go to the right. And come here, come here, they'd come to the near side, the left. And um, this day I'm going up and letting the horses pull me up. I was getting a bit tired. Next thing I got the best kick in the behind. <laughs> and the old man said, those horses have been working all day. All you've done is walk, pal. <laughs> I tell you, I never tightened another rein from then on. I, I, even I was getting tired, I never let the horses pull me up the cut. It was a great lesson. Bit of a lesson. So you were born in 1943. Mm-hmm. So you're 75 now. So, so when did you first uh, get involved with horses? Well, so- we, we had horses for as long as I can remember. We always had ponies or hacks at home. Um, and, and, uh, and Dad... Dad had the draft horses, of course, but they were never at home. They were the channels would go for miles, and they were just left. And a, an interesting point about the channels: there might be six or seven um, teamsters there, teams of horses, sixty, seventy horses, and they, at the end of the day, they just pull the collars and the hames off them, and they had a big long feeder. And all Dad's horses would get round the feeder, and he'd tip chaff and oats and loosen chaff into that of a night. And then he'd get there at six o'clock in the morning and he'd let out a whistle. And each teamster had his own whistle. And he'd let out a whistle. And from the 640 acres, Dad's 10 horses would come trotting up to the feeder to have a feed. And when they were nearly, when they'd nearly had what he'd done there, he'd walk around with the winkers and a collar. And he'd put the winkers on the horse and slip the collar on, on the horse, take him out, and he'd just stand there. Not tied up, just stood there. Then he'd get the next one until he had them all all uh, yoked up and they just stood there no tying them up well you had 10 horses abreast you you had nowhere to tie them you, they had to stand and then he'd put the reins on them and he'd drive them down to the scoop or the plough whatever he was doing down at the thing down the down at the job yeah did they ever did they ever take off with, with oh, land? yeah that's um storms were a big worry for the for the teamsters because horses lightning or crack of thunder and they and we had Every team nearly had a, a flighty horse. Barney was ours, he was a grey horse. And, and upstanding, big, all geldings, most of them. A couple of mares, but mostly geldings. And, and oh, it didn't take much for Barney to, to take off. And he'd bolt. And I've seen him bolt twice, and very frightening. And the worst part about it is if they bolted with the plough on or they bolted with a, with a, um, a scoop on, the slowest horse would get cut to pieces with the chains. That yeah. cut, cut his hocks and his bloody lower of his paston, inside his paston joint, and oh, awful, awful. But um, so if ever a storm looked like coming up, you drop the the rush round and pull all the chains off and get them back to the feeder and pull the winkers and hanes off them because you couldn't hold them. Impossible yeah. to hold them. Ten heavy horses. Oh, yep, strong. A lot of power. So you had ponies as kids. So yeah. was there a competition with uh, with your brothers and your sister oh, to? Yeah. yeah, well, we did. It was eight boys. There was seven, one girl, and and well, we did a lot of things. We Mare uh, uh, had a foal 
the stallion down the road got in with the mare and she had a fold in. He was, he was part draft horse. Anyway, and before Dad could get him broken in, we had him broken in and riding him and he wasn't mouthed or anything. And to get on him, you'd put a bread and butter and jam and put that on the ground and you'd sit on his head and you'd put his head up and you'd slide down his neck and that's how you got on him. And he, he wasn't mouthed. You, you, he just followed the mare wherever the mare went. But. So, well, look, we, we had horses as long as I can remember and, and did a lot of silly things. Rode them to school? Rode them to school, yeah. You'd walk three kilometres or four kilometres to catch the rotten things in these big paddocks and then you'd bring them back and ride them to school. The alternative was to ride a bike, but uh, it was easy to ride the horse. So how did you um, get into harness racing? Well, Dad, Dad and, uh, and an uncle of, our, of mine, a brother-in-law of Dad's, they had a, a gig mare and... Uh, and and this gig mare could trot, and anyway, or pace, and uh, and they'd drive her into town and so forth, and and she was pacing bread, and so there was a there was a, uh, a stud at, at Tokemore, and and um, they they took the mare up there and got her in foal, and and then they started to breed some foals. Uncle Frank and Dad, they he had a farm, Uncle Frank, so. Um, uh, and then they'd lease them out or whatever. And when I got to 15, I, I said, look, I want to train one. So I got a horse off him and, and trained it. And uh, um, that stopped me into trotting. But before that, I left school and I, I went and worked for a, for a builder. But I, I couldn't be apprenticed. I didn't want to be apprenticed anyway. I didn't want to be a builder. So I just worked for the builder. And, and uh, so... Uh, and I worked for him for three years, and then then a, a bloke who was a who was a chiropractor, Bill Wilson at Shepparton. He had he had a dozen horses or so, and he wanted someone to train them. And he said to Dad, Dad was going in with a crook shoulder or something, and he said uh, because Brian used to drive the horses. We, Your we, brother Brian, yeah. Brother Brian used yep. to drive the horses. He was a better driver than me. So well, Dad said he was anyway. So <laughs> I suppose he was. But at any rate, so. So he um, he drove the horse, and, and Bill Wilson said to Dad, "You know, could I? Would Brian be interested in training horses?" And Dad said, "No, Brian wouldn't wouldn't be interested in training horses, but Carl would be the one. He's the one that works them. So um, he's the one if you want someone to train the horses to to get to 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 do it, he'd do the the job. But it'd be better to ask to get Brian to drive them, and he Brian's a better driver, and that's what we did. So yeah." And tell me, did uh, you always have had a very, very strong work ethic? Yeah, well, when I was at school, I was earning £3.10 a week. And then I left school to... In what, year eight? How old were you? Year eight. Must have been about 14 or 15 then, I suppose. Yep. And what, what qualification did you get? I, I got me proficiency. Well, Sister Clements helped me get me proficiency, but that's another story. goes on for a bit, but... How did you get that? Let's let's hear that one. <laughs> well, well, I, I had the, all these jobs and she'd say, you've got to stay back after school now, Carl, and we'll go over this work. There was only two of us in, in uh, proficiency when I got proficiency. There was only two of us, Mary McKay and myself. Mary was, a, I thought, a genius, a really smart girl. She passed everything and I failed everything. And the sister Clements that was there said, and I was doing part of it by correspondence. And she said, uh, Carl, we've, you've got to get, you can't stay at school any longer. I said, Sister, I've been trying to leave here 
<laughs> from grade three. I, I hate school. And she said, I know that. So anyway, she got me a, she got me a, um, a period a week doing woodwork at the, at the high school. And so I come back and I, we had desks, old desks at the, at the convent and you push your books underneath. It didn't have lift-up lids, so I took the tops off all the desks and cut them in half and put, put uh, hinges on them so they were modern desks. So, so I did the whole... There was three rooms for kids. I don't know how many kids were there, but anyway, it must have been oh, a couple of hundred kids, 180. So I did all the desks anyway, and that got me probably a 1,000 points off Sister Clements for being, being able to do that and making the place a little more modern. And so... And she'd say, you'd have to wait back, and I'd say, no, I can't, sister, I've got to clean the... I do that. I was cleaning the dirt floor picture theatre, delivering the local paper, and watering the football ground. And I was earning three quid a week, three pound ten, I think it was. But I had to give mum and dad a pound a week, and, and um, because to help help them, they, were, they, weren't, uh, they weren't flushed with money, as you can imagine. We were all big eaters and so forth. But mind you, I was the only one working. I was the only one paying too. Nobody else in the family had a job. So anyway, then it come time to do the proficiency paper. And Sister Clements going up and back the room at the back of us. And she come to me. She said, "How's it going?" And I just opened my hands like that and said, "I I I can't remember one answer. I can't work out one answer." And she said, "Just sit there until everybody's gone." Right, so I sat there and afterwards. And she said, look, we went over it and she said, Carl, we've been out through this and through this and we've done that, we've done that. And I said, sister, it's a waste of time. I said, I just, I want to get out and get working. I said, this is no good to me. Anyway, she said, I can see that it's a waste of time. She said, here's Mary McKay's paper and don't copy it word for word. I said, well, what am I going to put? And she said, oh, Carl, she said, I don't know what I'm going to do with you. So anyway, I said, listen, I've got to get going. I've got a job to get to. So away I went. She said, well, you've got to come back in the morning at 10 o'clock and we'll get this paper sorted out. So I said, I can't. I'm playing, I'm playing football in the morning and so I've got to go to Finley to play footy. So I got there at 8 o'clock and, and didn't leave her much time by the time she went to 7 o'clock mass. So I got there at 8 o'clock and... And we went through this paper in the finish. She filled it in for me and she said, there's the paper, don't copy it word for word. There's the answers and God help my soul. I said, oh, never mind, God help your soul. I said, you're a genius, sister, you're a genius. That's how I got my proficiency. And that sister, Clements, I tell you, she was... When I got working for the builder, I used to go back and do little jobs, little cupboards here and things like that that needed doing at the convent. I did that for three or four years and she used to think I was pretty good for doing that so that's how you got out of school that's how I got out of school I hated school I just I couldn't remember things it just anyway so tell me how'd you get into to becoming a farrier well I I was training these horses at Shepparton and I won eight races in the first season which was pretty good and up around the country at areas. 15 no 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 I I see I was I worked in Yamurka for the builder for three years yep. so I was about 18 and a half I reckon I went to Shepparton and and so I uh, I started working those horses and an old blacksmith up there, Eric O'Brien, lovely old black, and probably didn't have much more education than what I did, but but um, he he just was too busy and he was an elderly man by the time I got him there to shoe my horses. So I started doing my own and and uh, 
And then I, I got to meet Bobby Knight and, and he brought a horse up to Bill Wilson. He was a chiropractor with, with or muscle man we called him, uh, with um, humans and horses. He used to work on horses too. And anyway, um, Bobby brought a horse up and I got to know him and went to the race and I cupped the horse I thought would win and I tipped them to him and they won. He thought that was pretty good. And then I mentioned to him that I, I'd like to get in to get with someone and learn how to make shoes properly and shoe horses. I reckon there's going to be a future because back in those days it was only trotting in the summertime. There was no trotting in the winter. So, and they were talking about starting winter meetings. So, anyway, um, he, Bobby came to, or oh, met him at the tro- uh, trots a lot of the time. And he said, Why don't you come down and work for, for, for us? And he said, uh, We might be able to get someone close to Melbourne there that take you on and teach you how to make the shoe. And I yeah, that's a good idea. So he, I came down and worked for Bobby's brother, Jack, and uh, Jackie Knight, and I, I um, worked there for a while. I was doing odd jobs and so forth. And then I got in, got in with an old bloke, um, another bloke that had horses, took horses down to Jack Ashton in Northcote. And he was a really good blacksmith, Jack Ashton. He was well respected in the trotting world for getting horses that had problems hitting their knees and cross-firing and hitting their shins and he could get them right. So uh, so I went down with um, to old Jack Ashton and I said to him after I'd met him a couple of times... So you, live, you were living in Kilmore? Living in Kilmore. 20, so this must have been around 1963 or 64? So, something like that. So you moved to Kilmore. It's uh, not the, cool, the the warmest place on, on the earth. No. But, uh, when I first came here, I had three, jump, three jumpers and two shirts on. I was that cold. That's how cold it was. And I was going to leave. And Jackie Knight said, you're a weak bugger if you can't stand a bit of cold. Work harder. So... So What's you, that effect? So you were shoeing uh, Jackie and Bob's horses? I was, I was shoeing Jackie's horses. They were Jackie's horses yep. at the time. I was shoeing them. And, and, and then you've gone down to Jack Ashton and I was make, I was making my own shoes yep. too, but I'd only taught myself. Yep. So, and I, I'd watched Eric O'Brien make them. So then I got down to, with Jack Ashton and I went down. And he said, yeah, you can, if you're silly enough to want to work for nothing, I'll teach you how to do it. So he was an alcoholic, poor old Jack. And he was... He was pretty sick when I got down there, but I'd go down, I went down nearly every weekend for two and a half years, working for him for nothing, just to learn. Just for the experience. Just, well, he'd mm. teach me how to make shoes and he'd show me how I was going wrong. He used to say, you got two left feet, you useless bastard, two left feet, so, so which he was probably right too. But anyway, um, so I went there and, and uh, I'd shoe those horses and he, that gave him money. He, 11 o'clock every Saturday morning, he'd make a beeline for the pub. It's because he was big on the grog project. But, so uh, early start. Early start. But he, anyway, he taught me, and, and then eventually in the finish when he was dying of cancer, we were at the trots one day there and having a beer with him. And a couple of the big trainers like Gordon Rothica came along and Mrs Barron came along, and they used to have him shoe horses. If they had problem horses, they'd get Jack to shoe them. And uh, Gordon said to him, how's your apprentice going, uh, Jack? Because I started shoeing horses for Gordon, some for Gordon at this stage. And, and Jack said, well, someday he'll be as, nearly as good as I, they say I am. He said, uh, he, he said, you can't insult him, you can abuse the bastard, he said, but he keeps turning up every Saturday morning. So he said, and he is getting better and better. So, so I, I nearly fell over when Jack 
made that comment. So, so what sort of advice would you give a, an apprentice farrier today, where that seems they're not earning a lot of money at the moment? But you know, what's what's your, the learnings you've taken from from your career? It, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you do. You don't get much money to start with. When I first started working for the builder, like I was at school and I was getting three pound ten doing three little jobs after school. I went and worked for the builder for I think two pound ten for him working forty hours a week, two pound ten. And and that was what you got because you're only you're only fifteen or sixteen. And and so I, I and with him to, to get on, he he was having trouble getting someone to dig the septic tanks. So and that's that well, the toilets yep. are used for and and so he couldn't get anyone to dig them and he was going crook about one day and I said what would you give me to dig them in my time you know, time and he said I'd give you 15 quid well I was earning two and a half quid 15 quid and I so I said I'll take it on I'll dig them myself you provide the shovels and the crowbars and the picks and I'll I'll do that and anyway and I could dig a septic tank and it which is it's about two and a half metres long, two metres deep one end, two metres and probably 200 deep the other end. And then it had it had um, uh, about 30 metres of leads that come off it. That, that's where all the all the water soaked in into the ground. But you had to dig those leads down down about four or five hundred mil. You'd start and they were about 400 wide, and every every um, Every three metres, you had to drop it by 20 mil. For the fall. For the fall, yep. for the water to run away. And that was all done by hand. No backhoes, no dingoes. No backhoes, yeah. no, no drills, no post hole drills. Yep. Everything was done by hand. And the blacksmiths used to sharpen the, the picks and the crowbars up. And, and, and what I'd do, I'd get there, knock off at four o'clock on Friday, and he'd have it all laid out for me, pegged out, put the pegs in. And, and then I'd take the top off. You might only go down an inch. It'd be that hard. You might go down an inch. And, and you dig the tank first and, and then fill it up with water. Then dig as much of the, of the lead as you could before dark and then fill it up with water. Then you'd leave and get home and have a few beers with the boys after, after you went and had a shower and got cleaned up and then be back at daylight next morning and you'd dig all those, the ones you'd done the night before, you'd dig them all out and you'd get down two or three inches because the water would soak in and then you'd fill it up with water again then you'd go and get your, the rest of your lead dug out and, and you just kept doing that and that's how you dug it out. If you got into sandstony country, whew, that was hard going. The water didn't make much difference. But I could dig a septic tank and, and the 30 metres of leads from Friday night at four o'clock and most, nights, most times by, by dark on Sunday night I'd have it finished. So you're getting 15, 15 pounds. pounds. So you're getting more than five times what you're yeah. earning a week for the weekend. And that's what paid for me horses, see? And, and that's, with young blokes, you're, you're being taught to, to a trade. That's, that's, you've been taught something's going to last you the rest of your life. Just go and get a, an extra job doing something else to get some more funds in until you, until you get to where you're qualified. Then you can, you can start and earn, you've got to earn bigger money then. And that comes to you, or you go out on your own, or whatever. But so, so get the message is get a trade behind you. Get a trade behind you, most important, and no better trade than the than the farrier trade, because you you your own boss basically, although your customers are your bosses really, but you can make the time and you can work around to suit yourself 
and uh, it's it's hard work physically, but it's very very rewarding work. So you've gone to you're living in Kilmore. You've gone to Jack Ashton to to learn how to to make shoes and how to do problem yeah. shoeing, corrective shoeing. So. You, your farrier business, how's that evolving at this stage? Is it just you or have you got other people working for you? It started off just me and, and of course by getting down to Jack Ashton's um, it got, it got uh, started to get more and more people and then I had a clientele at Jack Ashton's and then when Jack died I couldn't keep going, I couldn't keep going down there because I was getting too busy here and, I, and you've got to remember I was hand making all my shoes. In Kilmore. In Kilmore. Yeah. So I just said to the boys down there, look, I can't come down to Northcote. I'm just too busy at home. I'm working seven days a week at home. So they said, well, we'll have to come to Kilmore. So they come up to Kilmore, the ones that I was showing at Northcote. And see, a lot of them out around Mernda and out Doreen, where Gordon Rothiger and, and those people were, a lot of trotters out there. And they, a lot of them I was shoeing at Jack Aston's. And in those days, Kilmore was flourishing with the trotting? Well, yes, there was 630, 640 horses a day worked at the Kilmore track back then, I believe. Um, we, we so this run, is in the 60s and 70s, was it? Or? That'd be in the, yeah, the 70s, 60s and 70s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, today it's down to, there's probably only about 10 or a dozen paces here. Now at Kilmore, and there's probably 120, maybe, wouldn't be any more. Might be only about 80, gallop it, something like that. Okay. So you've got, um, you've got the demand there. So you've got, uh, so how did you go about employing other farriers or tradesmen to, to well, join I, you? I, it, I put on a, an apprentice to start with, and Bill Milner was the first apprentice, and, and um, he was apprenticed to me through the VRC. Those days there was no schooling, just work for tradesmen and, and you, it was an indenture form they called it. So uh, Bill came and then Jared Spall, um, he, he was with me. Jared, Jared was a real natural, found it very easy, could make shoes as good as I could and had a great eye for dressing a feet and so forth. Um, he was really good, Jared. And then I, then I uh, I um, one day Alec Cummings came to me. Alec came from Mildura, and and Alec uh, Alec bought a horse to me to, to get shot, um, and he bought it into the shop. And when I looked at it, I said, "This horse is not shot too bad. Who shoes it?" He said, "I do it myself." I said, "You don't want a job, do you?" And he laughed. He said, um, "Oh well, I'd like to be shoeing horses." He said, and "I said, what do you do for a living?" He said, "I'm a shearer." And I said, where do you come from? He said, Muldura. I said, oh, well, that'll be the end of that. So, so any rate, I, I, um, we got talking and I said, look, I'm serious. I could give you a job. I could teach you to, to shoe a horse and so forth. I said, uh, without any worries. He said, well, I'll go and have a talk to my wife about it and see what she says. So he went home and a week or so low, or a few days later, he rang up and said, yeah, I'm going to give that a go. And when he told me he had six kids... I thought, oh, that'll be the finish of that. So anyway, he said he's going to come down, so I had to get round. We got a place. Houses were hard to find at that time, and I found a place out at Kilmore East, which was a fairly run down, but Alec looked at it and said, yeah, they'd move into it. And then we got a better place in Kilmore. So um, Alec come and worked me, and Alec was a good tradesman. Um, Alec, Alec learnt to hot shoe and, and uh, finished up. His two boys have taken it on, and they're two very well-known 
boys, uh, Paul and, and Mark. Uh, Mark at, uh, at um, Flemington. Um, Caulfield, aren't they? Caulfield Flemington. and Flemington. Yeah, Flemington. Caulfield and yeah. Flemington, the two boys. Unfortunately, we lost their father a few weeks ago. It was a great send-off to him, but uh, he'd done a great job, Alec. He was a, a good tradesman, and he... Uh, he uh, he did what I asked him to do, and and uh, he picked it up pretty quick. And became a very well respected thoroughbred ferret. Yeah. So tell me, how did you um, how did you remunerate your the the farriers, the tradesmen that were working for you? Did yeah. you have some uh, arrangement to make sure that they were you know th- uh, they could stay with you, or how did you work that? Yeah, I never had. Uh, well, even through the factory, never had many people leave. Um, but I, when I was shoeing horses, I I put them on a base salary, and then I gave them then I gave them uh, so much a horse. Everybody that was in the shoeing team, if there's three of us or four of us, they they'd get so much a horse, and that way we'd start early and finish late. Uh, wasn't worrying about overtime running, but they were getting so much a horse, and um, they well they all as I said they were still with me until I started to get into the manufacturing and I said, look, you, I'm going to have to give the shoeing away pretty much. You guys uh, can take it over. So I gave them stables each. I spoke to the different stables and they were happy to use the boys and um, as their farriers and, and they were all very capable. And so they took over the shoeing and then I got on with the manufacturing. So in, in terms of... Um uh, the manufacturing. How did you get into making shoes? You said you made your own shoes in Yamurka and then you came to Kilmore. No, Were you still no, making no, in Shepparton. In Shepparton, sorry. Yeah, in Shepparton, yes. I started to make them and they, and they were pretty ordinary. By hand, yeah. By hand. But I'd only watched Eric O'Brien make them and I, I, no one had told me the basics of what to do and so forth. So um, they were pretty crude and I had to make my own tools. So... Um, and then when I got with Jack Ashton, he showed me how to make the tools properly and how to balance a shoe up. And um, the 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 reason why a horse hits their knee or crossfires and all of these sorts of things. So so it's all about rhythm and balance. And and then to make the shoe that's balanced when it goes on the foot, and to get, so that you get the flight of the foot going true and not not hiddling piddly everywhere because the foot floats about when it goes through the air. It's amazing. How much it moves, so uh, so uh, then I, I I got such a hell of a demand for for shoes, pacing shoes, that I couldn't keep up. I was working till eleven o'clock at night, then up at um, five o'clock next day to get going at six, and and because uh, that's the thing, if you I wouldn't go out and shoe horses like they do today, I I'd only go where I could have a full day's work or half a day's work, and then go to another stable for another half day. I said, that way, that way, I wasn't stopping and starting, and and I could take three or four blokes with me, and away we'd go. So, in, where did you get your raw material from? So, this was all being made by hand. Yeah. Yeah. What? Did, how did you start to get the wear out of the shoes? Well, and- to get and and with paces and trotters, you've got to have light shoes. So, and and of course, mild steel wears out very quick. And someone put me on to getting the the tines off the old. Uh, horse-drawn hay rakes and they were an agricultural steel and and so I got some of them and and uh, in the finish I bought a lot of those old hay rakes and got a a guy to cut them all off with the oxy and then I'd put them in the fire and get them hot and I'd cut them to length 
Then I run them through a swedge block, which puts the groove in it, get them hot, and run it with an eight-pound hammer, putting it down. Pretty fit those days. And, and But, you know, you can only make so many shoes in an hour, especially when you've got to run it. And then... And they were high carbon, spring they, steel? Yeah, they were the... That was around about a 1060, 1070 material. Yeah. yeah. That, that's... Um, 0.70 is the 1070 is um, point the 100 I think is mild steel or 120, and then 60 70 that's agricultural spring and then the 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 um, the spring steel for motor cars and springs and so forth that's that's upper end of 20 the 0.2 carbon content. There's lots of other things in it silicon and so forth as well. So and then I someone told me that they. Uh, the people that make the bathroom scale salters had a lot of um, a lot of steel that they they don't didn't use anymore, and that I there might be a chance that I could buy it at the right price. So I went and someone told give me an in, and I went and saw the guy, and oh yeah, we'd sell it. And it was still wrapped up in in oil paper, in in and so it, it wasn't rusty or anything. It was good oil, and so I I bought a track semi trailer out of it, and bought it up to Kilmore Jack Knight. Uh, had a bloke drop it down, and I had to load it all by hand. They were they were half ton coils. Oh wow! And um, and I, I employed a couple of blokes to come with me, and we pulled them up with pulleys and put them on the back of the trailer. And then then uh, Jack come down and with brought his truck down and picked it up, or one of his drivers did, and brought it up to Kilmore. So I had it stacked up here, and then then uh, um, Bob Grinter came on the scene and and. Uh, he said to me, "We could, you could make a machine to, to, um, to make these horseshoes." And I said, "Make anything if you got the money." I didn't have the money at the time. I was struggling and building a house. I married then and building a house, and and uh, and then to spend money on a machine. But anyway, finished up the the engineer from the company that he was with. That was a uh, shock absorber company, and and so. Uh, the engineer agreed to uh, to do a drawing for us, and 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 they knew some knew some tool makers that could be interested in making it, and kept the price down. But anyway, when the machine came back, it it didn't work as good as it should because the the the, the high tensile material was hard to bend and hard to keep level, and and then you had to put the nail holes in it, and, and that has to go in first, so. That then wouldn't, with the hind shoe especially, it was light on the inside and, and heavy on the outside and it had a trailer on the outside so the, the skew, shoe would want to pull skew if and uh, it was a nightmare before we got it going right. But then eventually, then eventually, uh, Gary, I got Gary um, come, come and work for me. Gary Broom? Gary Broom, he yeah. was a design engineer, yeah. Gary. And we had to build all our own machines, which he built the first one and we, he got it we got it working. I made some uh, alterations to it, and but I, I, I couldn't I couldn't um, do what toolmakers can do. I could only do things with a welder and weld pieces here and weld pieces there. And he nearly had a heart attack when he saw what I did to his machinery. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we built more machines and um, we got it perfected. And and um, eventually, then I with this steel I had, I went up to a roll rolling mill in Sydney called Rydalmere, at Rydalmere called Rydal Steel. And I got them to, to roll me 
two size sections um, and I had a fair bit of steel there for it and they rolled that, I sent it to Sydney and then they rolled it into section and sent it back by road and um, that's how I got going with the rolled section. Making the pacing shoots. Making the pacing shoots. So in the early days when you were hand making them, were you selling them at the racetrack or how, would you, how, did, oh, you, how yeah. did you sell them? I had some experiences, you, you talk about getting going in, in, into business and so forth. I, I used to make them up by hand and, and there was always some characters at the, at the trots and, and, and uh, going around, I'd take a sugar bag full of, or half a sugar bag, two half sugar bags full of, full of shoes and I'd sell them to the different trainers and they'd, uh, I'd have the sizes with a bit of, paper, a bit of cardboard with the size on them and they'd, they'd, different ones would buy them and there was one bloke, Jack Moore from Mirabar and Jack was a great trainer, runner, won an Inter-Dominion Jack can't think of the name of the man now, but he won an Inter Dominion, and and he was a tough old bloke, Jack. And he'd look at the shoes. No, not good enough for my horse, son. And I I, I used to charge two dollars fifty for him then. Not good enough for my horse, son. No, no. But if you got any left at the end of the day, you come and see me. So I'd go back to him for half a dozen sets left. Now look. Because they're not good enough, I'll give you two dollars. So he'd get them for two dollars. Oh, he's an old bugger. But anyway, that that made me more and more determined. To all your resilience. To to get and do them properly. That was that was before Jack. Before I went to Jack Ashton, mm. and and then afterwards when I went to Jack Ashton for I didn't see a lot of Jack Moore. Uh, Jack Moore because I I wasn't taking shoes to the races then. I had a big build up of clientele shoeing. And people wanting shoes, so I was sending New Zealand. I was sending to Sydney, sending to Brisbane, and um, uh, South Australia, some to Western Australia, all over the place. I, I had a the first lot that I um, I sent to Sydney. The first lot I had a, another farrier up there who who was selling them for me, pacing shoes. And I used to wire them up with a bit of wire and, and put a cardboard with the size on them, and then I'd send them up in wheat bags. And um, he'd get three or four wheat bags of, of shoes. Uh, and that's, that's how we started off. You'd move them. So in terms of um, the, the manufacturing was getting going, so you, you had a ferry business, you were training standard brutes and trotters as yes, well. So yes. you always had six to ten of those in work as well? Well, I, I dropped... I, no, I, got, I dropped off the, the trotters and paces, the standard brutes, because... When I got busy shoeing, I only had a couple of horses then with Tom Taylor, who lived over the back fence from me. And, and so I'd, I'd go and help Tommy of a morning. And uh, then when I started, when I got into the, into the um, manufacturing, I, 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 I just had the couple of horses with Tom that I had to share, and I just worked with him of a morning. But I, I virtually, as the business got going, I give the horses away, but I kept shoeing horses. But I didn't have paces for a long, long while. Tommy had died, and but um, I, I did. I was lucky. I in that um, I had a lot of luck with, with some with horses. I won the Hunter Cup in 1979. I won two Cochrane Cups, a Dallard Cup, a Consolation of Inter Dominion Trot. But all of them were with horses that had problems. And I was hoof able, problems. Hoof problems. And I was, they were good horses before I got them. And I could get their feet right. And they were good horses. Good horses. So you had a lot of success training. I had a lot of success training, yeah. But yeah. You, you got out of the training in probably the mid-80s, mid was it? Yes, yeah. Yeah, well, 
the, the when they brought in AI breeding, you, you they got too many foals on the ground, and you couldn't get a start in races. So you had to go to the trials and qualify, and before you could get a start, and and uh, so you it, it just made it too hard. And I said, oh well, I'll go back into into um, I think at that time I had about eighteen horses in work. So then I, I went back into the business because Bob Grinter was selling the shoes at that time. So what was your arrangement there with Bob? Was he a shareholder in it? No, or was it no? no Bob started off. He, he got me Gary Broom to start with to design a machine and so forth. And, and then Gary came to work for us and I said... Because for us being you and Bob? Or no, just, no, me. Yep. Uh, only I. And, and Gary came to work for me and, and I... I uh, um, I said to him, look, well, if, if you're interested, you can take the shoes and sell them. You don't have any ownership in the business, but you can be the marketing side of Odawai Horseshoes. And I'd registered the company, so he, he'd come and pick the shoes up and he'd sell them. So he was your exclusive sales uh, distributor? Yeah. 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 And it was, it was um, for many years, and it was back, it was once... Once the I gave away, once I gave away the trotting, training the trotters because you couldn't get starts. Um, then I went back into the business and I said, "Well, I might as well sell my own shoes." So I offered to buy Bob out, and I said to Bob Grinter, "I'm quite happy to buy you out, your sales thing out." And he said, "No, I'm not selling my my business. I'll um, I'll stay and I'll sell the opposition shoes." And there were several manufacturers then. So he started selling the opposition shoes and, and um, he still sold mine for a good while too. So you're fierce but competitors? I, I, well, I started, up my own, I started up my own business and uh, um, two guys that were working for him in the marketing of, of his shoes come and work for me. Uh, he said he didn't need them, he wasn't going to be as big, so they left and I picked them up. They come and work for me for a period of time. And um, that's that's how it, uh, that's how I got the marketing going and and um, developed the the marketing side because you can have the best product in the world as you know if you can't sell it doesn't matter how much, how good a product it is. So this was in the probably the mid eighties and you were you were looking to expand the business. Yeah. So to grow it. so you were in the old industrial estate in Kilmore yes, and you, yes. you acquired 20 acres close by? Well, I, the, I had a, a guy next door to me and, and the guy next door to me was building sheds. And I, it, had been an old fa- it had been a foundry. It wasn't an old, it was a new one when it was built. But anyway, this guy come in and, um, and one of my boys dropped a bundle of steel off on the adjoining fence between us and oh this bloke had a heart attack so about dangerous with the steel and he was right and I thought oh I need more more room the block's not big enough and and steel was six metres long so you know it was dangerous to lift up in the air and so forth so so um, this block where we are now 20 acres came up for sale and and, uh, I, I went and saw the bloke that had it and uh, someone had told me it was going to bring a lot more money than, than what the fellow had on it. And when he told me how much he wanted for it, I said, will you give me, give me an hour to, to um, just get home and write a deposit out for $10,000 and bring it back to you so that I'll buy it. 
it, it was own rural at the time. So anyway, um, uh, yeah, he said, it's sold to you, Carl, if you want it, it's yours. So he sold it to me. And uh, then I had to ring the bank and organise a loan and, and then had to build a factory. So that was in the mid eighties and I borrowed a million dollars. Most of it I had at, um, at 12 and a half percent. And I thought I was a genius with all this money at 12 and a half percent. And, but I had a 300, or $300,000 overdraft and I was paying the full total odds for that, which was 22% at one time. So let's, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk about debt going forward and how you coped with that. So here we are, part two of the Carlo Dwyer podcast, and uh, last uh, at the last uh, recording, we we'd uh, just mentioned Carl that you'd, you'd purchased a twenty-acre property, taken on a significant amount of debt to grow the business, and how did you decide that 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 was going to be the direction you took? Did you have a business plan, or did you uh, did you just see the opportunity for growth, and also? Taking into account, uh, you know, shocks to the business, what was your fallback position? Well, to start with, I, I could see that there was growth in in the business if if I could um, if I could produce the product and, uh, and and improve the product as we went along, then I could grow it. There's no question about that. I was sure of that. I had I had a very big chunk of the Australian market and a big chunk of the New Zealand market. And, and we were exporting to several other countries at the time. So, but I needed, I needed to be able to up my production. And, and um, so I, I um, with, the cash flow, with, with the cash flow, I, I had to borrow money to, when I shifted into the uh, new factory on the 20 acres, I borrowed money to build the new factory and that was, which was a million dollars, and 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 I had to build the factory out of it, and and uh, build three gas furnaces, and and then then program the the automation into the gas furnaces so that we could make make the shoes out. It was a whole different program because before that I was using induction furnaces. So then you went to natural gas because it came to, to uh, Kilmore, yeah? yeah, and it was cheap. Yeah, it was very cheap back then. So, so, but it cost a lot of money to do what I wanted to do, and and when I when I um, set set the built the factory and set it all up, I um, I I then wanted to do side clips on on sho- on hind shoes and so forth. Well, all of that, all of that, it, it's a, a huge cost, and and then with the recession we had to have, came in and and I had a major problem like everybody else getting your money in because people people want to book up and then they don't pay on time and or, or they want to string you out to 60 90 120 days and you've got a bank breathing down your neck and and so I and I had my only worry was how how I would survive if the bank came and said they wanted half my overdraft back and banks were known to do that back then if if they were worried about a business at all, if you weren't able to meet your commitments, they'd take half the overdraft off you, so that you, you'd, you'd, have to, you'd have to somehow borrow money or whatever. But in my case, I had borrowed above my head, not to me head, above my head. And, so and, what, what was your fallback position? What was your... Um... Well, the, the, fallback, the fallback position was if, 
if, if I got into trouble, if I got into trouble, that I would just reduce the workforce to about 10 people and, and then I could make a good living and pay those people a good salary and, and survive for a couple of years like that and still be involved. And I didn't think any other bigger business would, would, um, would, would go for two years not making a profit. But, and that was my fallback position. But the, the big worry was, especially during the recession, was that the bank's foreclosing on your overdraft. If they'd have come and said to me, I want half your overdraft back, well then um, I'd have been bankrupt because I just had, there was no way known I could borrow any more money. So how did you uh, fix that? So I went to the, I had a very good bank manager here in Kilmore and, and I spoke to him about it and we talked about lots of different loans that you could get and we came up with the idea that, well, maybe I could take maybe a couple of hundred thousand in, in, a, um, in bank bills and I staggered them. I didn't take the 200,000 one bite, so I, I staggered them so that, so that I, I'd have to, because with a bank bill you had to pay your interest and your fees up front. And then you got the use of that money for 120 days. But the bank wouldn't, they weren't worried about you then because if you were meeting your commitment, they're more than happy. But, and it was costing me more money. It was a dearer way to borrow money. But it meant that I could go home and sleep at night knowing that the bank couldn't say um, tomorrow that I want half your overdraft back. They could do that in 120 days. You could do that in 120 <laughs> days. But then at the end of 120 days, yeah. because I'd, I'd met my commitments, and, and paid me interest up front and paid me fees up front, then they'd lent it to me again. So I kept doing that only until the recession finished. Then I went back to overdraft. So how did you, so collecting money is the key to any business because you, oh, can, be, no you can be profitable, but if you are owed money and you don't have cash flow, you can't meet your commitments in terms of you know, your salaries for the staff you're employing, your money you owe the, the tax office because the tax yep. office doesn't forgive debts, they come no. after you. So how, how, do you, how did you deal, and you, you saw that in your farrier business, you saw that in your, your horse training business, and you also saw that in, your, in the manufacturing and of, of hoof care products and, and sales. How did you deal with that? Well, I, I, when I came back into the business um, full time, I, I, um, I started running our own marketing division I took the job of, of um, ringing all my distributors regularly to get money in. Or if I had farriers and that sort of thing, I'd be on their back, look, we need the money. And, and I took that on myself to do that. And there's an art in it. that You've got to do it without insulting people because the last thing you want them to do is pay you and then tell you to, they don't need you anymore. So you've got to try and extract the money without insulting them. And... And so I, I would, but I'd ring every week. I, I was non, every week I rang anybody that owed, my, owed me money. And the whole time I've been in business, I haven't lost very much money in bad debts. Lost a few, Bob, naturally, but not big, not big numbers. And what do you put that down to? Oh, just, just continuously being on their back about... Communication, getting, yeah. Yeah, communication, getting your money in. Yeah. And, and look, and as I'd say to them, look, I got the bank chasing me. And and if I don't if I don't get the money in, then I've uh, the bank won't supply me. They'll they'll cut me overdraft off, and then I'll be out of business. You'll you'll uh, you'll have to get your shoes somewhere else, and and uh, then it'll be another manufacturer out of the business. Tell me, how did you uh, use those those same uh, techniques in your farrier business? 
Yes, I did. I, a um, couple of times in the farrier business, uh, I had two scenarios. One bloke who said he was just going bad and he owed me, I think, four or five hundred dollars. So I said, well, I'm sorry, I can't chew your horse anymore. And he said, uh, look, I'm just going bad. I'll turn it round. I'll get another good horse in the future. I said, well, if I keep waiting for everybody that says that, I said, I'll be frank, bankrupt and broke. So I said, no, I can't chew your horses. And, and, and then he rang me the next day and I said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going back a long while because shoeing was $8 a horse then. I'm going back 40 years probably. And, and I said, I'll, all right, I'll shoe your horses, but you bring in, and he had a double float he used to bring them in. You bring in two horses at a time like you do, and you bring $20 in. $8 for the two horses I shoe and two off your bill. And I did that for long period of time until such time as he, he did come up with another good horse and was able to square his bill up and but he kept paying me from that day on and and he was never a bad debt and he'd get I'd be at the trots there with a the horse in there, oh, here's me mate, he's the best bloke, he helped me help myself and, and blah 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 he'd go on about it because but I was helping myself. And another one was, without mentioning names, a very, very successful trainer. And every time you'd mention that, look, I've got to put the price up, it'd say, oh, you know, it's that getting that costly. I don't know how we're going to survive in, in training trotters and paces. That, you know, the money's just not there and the cost of everything going up. And, and this, this bloke, you'd get morning tea and afternoon tea and, and lunch supplied and the end of the... So it's good to work for. Second day, he'd, he'd bring out a couple of bottles of beer for the workers and yourself. And, and he was a terrific bloke to work for, yeah. But he was just would always complain. And at one stage, I had him uh, $2 or $2.50 cheaper than anybody else. Because, so what was that, 20 25% cheaper than anyone else? Oh, around about that, I suppose, yeah. And, and so, so in the finish, I thought, oh, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. So I let it go for two or three months, and I went to him. I said, listen, you'll have to get yourself someone else to shoe the horses. He said, why? I said, well, I've done my figures and with my accountant and so forth, and I'm not making any money. I said, I'd be better off going and working for somebody. And I said, at least I, and I can just shoe a few horses on the weekend. Well, wh- why aren't you? I said, well, the accountant said I'm not charging enough money. Well, he said, what you'll have to do, just put them up by a couple of dollars a horse. <laughs> <laughs> so I did, and I... And I um, and that, that fellow, he was quite happy, he paid the money, never complained. And, and, uh, and afterwards, when I gave it to another farrier, when I give away the shoeing to build the manufacturing, um, I cut back on the shoeing. And when I gave it away, this other farrier had the same problem. And I told him how, to, how, I, how I got the price increase with this fellow. And uh, he come back to me a couple of months later, and, oh, you're a genius, you're a genius. He said, that black said, well, you'll just have to put it up a couple of dollars. So, so, you know, it's all about a bit of mind games, I suppose, but it's about communication and, and uh, having, having an ability, I suppose, to, to um, think a bit outside the square. Did you ever think about life after shoeing horses or, or uh, did you ever think about retirement when you were shoeing? And how you were going to provide for it, or what was your what was your mindset in in the early days? Well, I'm 75 now, and I'm still shoeing horses, and I enjoy shoeing horses. So I I'm going to keep shoeing horses as long as I can. I know I won't go on forever doing it, but my accountants and, and the the secret in any business is you must have good accountants. 
my accountants, I, I went through about eight accountants before I, early on in the business, uh, accountancy firms, and then um, I got in with this firm, a, a guy, Geoffrey Levitt, who was treasurer of the VRC, put me onto at Haynes Norton, and I've been with them ever since. But they did, they did spreadsheets for me, and they did, uh, we'd sit down and go through the costings, and, and I knew how much, at the end of each year how much I should be making in profit, and then progressively each month I could keep a track of how I was going. And, and one of the things they said to me once we moved into the new factory, now, Carl, you've, you've paid a lot of money to the banks, we want you now to put 20000 a year into super. I said, where the hell is that going to come from, 20000 a year? They said, well, you go and see your bank manager and tell him that we've said all the risk you're taking, the money you're paying the bank, you expect that they'll, they'll increase your overdraft to include every June that 20000 to go into your super. And so uh, that's what I did. And I, I put it into, into super and then... I said to the accountants at some stage, I said, listen, I had a fair bit of money in the super fund, and I said, can't the super fund buy, buy the 20 acres and the factory? And I lease it back off them, and they went to the taxation department, tax wouldn't allow that. They'd allow you to lease off another, another guy that had money in a super fund, and, and because you were at arm's length. And then all of a sudden, it, it, some states, they, a couple of years later, they said, well, you can, your super fund can buy it and you can lease it back, but it's got to be all uh, arm's length and legitimate, which enables you to rent the place exactly off your super fund. And um, the super fund took on the, the uh, 20 acres. And, and, of course, the big saving is the super fund pays five cents in the dollar where you're paying... Well, no, that's a 15 cents, but that's... Oh, 15 all, cents, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, but that changes, super changes, but you've got to seek your own personal financial advice. But um, the, the other question I've got is, how did you deal with um, injuries as a farrier? Did you get many injuries and did you look after yourself? How did you, how did you cope with the... Because it's a very... Uh, it's a tough job, tough on the body, so you need to look after yourself. Oh, yeah, well, I... No, I never had many injuries. I had a horse jump on me toe one day. I, I, um, he was a thoroughbred and giving me lots of problems. And, and I gave him a bloody dig in the ribs and he landed <laughs> his foot and pulled me big toenail off. I'll never forget it. Anyway, um, but no, I never had, uh, I never had many injuries from, from... I remember you had a nerve injury, was it? Yeah, but that was... I, I, you get stiff and, and, and so forth from... Uh, horses pulling you about and so forth but and I went to a chiropractor and he he damaged a nerve in my shoulder that's what happened there but you know but I mostly mostly um, by that stage I had guys working for me anyway and um, and and I got the stage where I just won't shoe horses that don't stand up send him off to take him back to the horse breaker I don't want them because you shouldn't you're a farrier you're not a horse breaker that's that's true. So going back in terms of um, you're also involved in farrier associations, you're also a member of the, in the early days, of the Victorian Master Farriers and then, um, then later the Australian Farriers and Blacksmiths. Yep. And, uh, and you were, then became a life member of the, the Farriers and Blacksmiths Association of Victoria and, and uh, when they joined the Victorian uh, Master Farriers, you're a life member of the Victorian Master Farriers. Yeah. How is the history of the associations um, in Australia, and, and what what's um, what have you seen as the the evolution? 
Well, what happened was there was a, when there was a split, there was a few of us wanted to get into competitions, shoeing competitions, and the Master Farrier Association weren't interested in that. So, so um, I, uh, I started off by organising one shoeing competition here at, when I was in the Master Farrier Association at Kilmore, and it went off quite successful, but the association wasn't interested. So there was a few of us got together and we decided we'd go it alone and, and uh, we started the Farriers and Blacksmiths Association and then we started running competitions and it was very successful. But like most things, it, there's only a handful of people that are prepared to run them. It takes time and so forth. And I was one of the guys that was running them. I used to run them at the Melbourne show every year and, and get the horses in and lots of, lots of work in it, lots of work. And a lot of uh, clinicians and overseas yeah, farriers. Yeah, we brought overseas farriers out, and and, um, and that, that helped the industry a lot. Got a lot of guys into hand making shoes and hot chewing and that sort of thing, which um, you know I'm a huge advocate for. I'm a great believer in in hot chewing for for horses. I I, I know it's not convenient now with uh, and not feasible with the thoroughbreds in the Queen's plates and so forth, but. Um, if I if I'm mute putting aluminiums on, I nearly always burn a steel shoe on first and put me aluminium shoe over the top over the top because it seals the foot, seals the foot. And some horses do have a a, a slight can have a slight reaction to to aluminium. And going uh, going forward to um, to the late nineties, you. Um uh, the business was developing and you, you talking about aluminium shoes you did start to get involved in a joint venture with a Australian horseshoe nails and thoroughbred in the US and you yep. were manufacturing aluminium shoes in Australia yeah Ed Kenny in uh, the US with the, the um, thoroughbred uh, horseshoe company and um, um, Rick and Linda Schultz from Australian horseshoe nails yeah that from Ballarat yeah, we got together and we had a three-way venture. We got making aluminium shoes and, and uh, oh yeah, we sold a lot of shoes and, and we had that going and, and it, it wasn't quite as successful as we'd hoped, but I think probably a lot of that was the product that we were making um, just didn't take off like I thought it would. And we, we but when you, when you get into drop forging, you've got to, it's expensive to change dyes over and so forth and uh, so um, I could see what was required but then it was going to cost a lot of money to change the dies and make that happen but yeah it was it was successful and I, I only gave that away when uh, when we sold the business to Mustard and and we had to um, I had to not be involved with any other company so I had to I handed that back to Thoroughbred then. So that was 2002 when you sold to, to Mustard Hoof Care? Yes. What was uh, the 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 feeling leading up to that were you uh, did you get emotional in terms of holding on to the business or what was when you were looking at selling the, an asset being a business what was your mindset in those days oh no i i, I don't get to uh, to attach to anything i it's the same with racing and that sort of thing you everything has a use by date and uh, as you remember we 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 sat and talked about it for a long period of time over a few beers and and um, we, you would speak to Mustard regularly of a Friday night, the Mustard guys would ring up. But um, no, I, I didn't, I, I'm a great believer. We, we looked at, you and I looked at 
in order to go forward and to be a world player, which we, we had a big chunk of the Australian market then when you took over managing the company, we, you group made the business grow dramatically. And, and what we had to do was to, to improve the product more, finish of the product and that sort of thing. And so we just started on that and getting things going, going with the, we had side, side clipped hinds and, and uh, um, we, knew, we were starting to finish the heels nicely and all that sort of thing. But we, we could see that Mustard were a big player and, and the uh, opposition were, were big. Um, um, the Europeans, Kirkart, Kirkart, yep. Kirkart yep. especially Kirkart in Australia. And, and so we just said, well, we're not in the, financially in the league to, to compete against those players. And then when Mustard came and offered to buy us out or asked us if it was for sale, well, we, we sat down and uh, worked on a strategy and, and, uh, and, and it worked. It was good for Mustard, I believe, and it was certainly good for us. Um, and um, I, I haven't, uh, I, I've got to say that um, Mustard were very good to deal with. They did everything they said they'd do and I'm I suppose I did too. I didn't leave a stone unturned. If I said I'd do something, I did it. But it, it, everything has a lifespan. Everything has a has a, a time where if if someone wants to take you on or buy you out, you've got to consider it. Everything's got a price, I believe. That's my philosophy in life. And so life after manufacturing. So you've sold the business, and then um, and then you 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 got got. Back involved with one of your, your your passions, which is harness racing. Yes. So you got uh, you didn't own too many horses while you were building the business because no, I, I went right out of horses for about twenty years. And you weren't a big gambler. No, I've never been a, a big punter. Yeah. Never been a big punter. Uh, just money was too hard to get. Didn't want to lose it, uh, or couldn't afford to lose it no, with the commitments. Yeah, it was too hard to get. Yeah, yeah. and I had three children and and. Um, and your mother, Aileen, she she uh, she worked at the hospital for thirty odd years. She she worked a lot, and she loved nursing. There's no doubt about that. But um, I I've never been a, a big punter, and I never would be. And did you? Uh, so you then uh, joined the Harness Racing Victoria Board? Yeah, I was asked to join the Harness Racing Victoria Board, and and. Um, um, I was on there for ten years or eleven years, something like that. And in that time, we rebuilt 15 tracks at a cost of between one and 1.2, 1.3 million each. We bought Melton, uh, built a built the uh, complex at Melton, and it's it's got a uh, uh, motel, I think 30 or 40 bed motel there, and gaming machines and so forth, and it's on 200 acres. So it's a, it's a, and Melton's just going haywire at this stage. It's worth a lot of money now, I believe. Um, but um, it was interesting times. We, when we took it over, it was financially in a fairly bad way. And the board that I was part of, we, we worked very hard and made a lot of hard decisions. And, um, but we wouldn't have been able to, to do 50, rebuild 15 tracks or 14 tracks and to buy Melton and set it up. Sure, we left a debt, we left a large debt when we left, but we, we had a 20 year loan or a 30 year loan to pay it off. And, and the, um, uh, we had a strategy to 
that the uh, Tabaray over there would pay off the interest component each year, and and so it was going to pay for itself. And and at this stage, it's working that way. Unfortunately, uh, boards after us haven't proceeded the way we had it structured. They've cho- chosen to go different ways, and uh, today uh, it's just um, it's ticking over, but um, it. Probably not as going as good as what it was when we were there. In, in 2016, you won the Gordon Rothica Medal for harness, contribution to harness racing. Yes, I did. Yes, which was a, a great honour and a privilege to uh, to win that. I never ever thought I'd win that. I couldn't see how I was uh, how I was entitled to to uh, to be the winner. And I never had a clue that. Even when I went to the night, I never had a clue that I was, I was going to be receiving the Rothiger Medal. It was quite a, quite a shock, I've got to say. But I was very privileged, and I was very honoured. So that's recognition to service to to the harness racing yeah. industry for for many years. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've been in harness racing other than the twenty years. I was still involved with horses, with the manufacturing and chewing horses, but. Um, I, You're I've still been, on the committee at uh, Kilmore no, Harness Racing? No, I'm not, no. No, you I, were in those days. I was in those days, yeah. 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 Not while I was on the board. You can't be on a country yeah. club committee and then on the board. But, um, yeah, and I'm, I'm on the trustees still at Kilmore, which I've been there must be 40-odd years, 30 to 40-odd years. So looking back um, on the 75 years and probably 70 around horses, what would you change? Oh, probably if I had the if I was doing it all over again, and I know what I know now, I probably would have borrowed two million, not one million. <laughs> but the bank probably wouldn't have lent it to me because I didn't have the ability then to pay it off. But no, I wouldn't change anything. Um, look, it it was hard work. There's no doubt about that. But that's what you're given your youth for to work hard. I mean, you it doesn't matter whether you're an accountant or whether you're a farrier or a rocket scientist. We've all got to work hard. If we're, if we're interested in what we're doing and, and we want to be successful, the word work is just simple formula. So if you work hard at what you're doing and you're, and you're conscientious and you're honest, honesty is a big plus. If there's, uh, an old trainer that taught me a lot, Tom Taylor, um, said to me when I, when I was at his place there, uh, Lose your name and you lose your life. And uh, I have seen that happen so often where people do stupid things and, and get, get, get a suspension or a disqualification or more a disqualification in the industry and they never really get over it. So, you know, that was great advice to me. Lose your name and you lose your life. And the hoof care industry is a farrier and a, a horseshoe manufacturer and a, a, a hoof care... Uh, sales business how where does the the farrier industry you know compare in terms of uh you know where do you hold it compared to say harness racing and are they equal or or do you have a passion for harness racing what's what's your passion although i yeah i love harness racing it's that's in my blood um i I don't i I have no passion i've had thoroughbreds i I was part owner of a horse that won the grand annual and the briley one year at warnable um, but uh, I, I don't. Um, I, I just can't get interested much in gallopers. But uh, trotting, I love trotting. I, I uh, 
and and it, with trotting harness racing people people can own train shoe it take it to the races drive it themselves and you know without those little players in the industry that they're what they are what make the industry when you get when you get several professional guys if you had say 25 or 30 drivers then they get to where they're I'm not saying they pull horses up, but they get to where they owe each other a favour. A horse might be stuck three deep and, and you're in the death seat. And because you're, you're driving with the same drivers, or oh, I better not leave him out there, he's helped me a couple of times, or just he's back. That's not pulling the horse up, but that shouldn't happen. But that's why you need the little person, the, the little hobbyist, to, because he, he doesn't give a bugger what you've done and where you've come from he said he just no, wants you, to win yeah, yeah I, I'm, I want to stay here and he'll leave you out there whereas you know that's that's the disadvantage of having all professional people get all professional um, um, drivers and, and trainers and so forth you need the little hobby blokes just to break the numbers up and to and to make it so that the industry the industry thrives because when you go to the races, the majority of people go there to have a bet. And, and they don't care if the bloke's a hopeless driver and he's 50 to one, they'll say, well, so-and-so's there, he'll splat him up, but, but that'll give my horse a chance. He'll be back in the field a bit and that'll split the field up and he'll have a chance to run on at the finish. So you need the little hobbyist, that's important. And the farrier industry, how, how, where do you see the health of the farrier industry and, uh, and the, the, the products and, and the future? Well, the future is, well, whilst you've got horses, you're going to need farriers. Now, I know in, in, my, in my 55, 56 years, whatever it is, shoeing horses now, I, I have seen a lot of things, a lot of changes. Products come onto the market that are going to do this and do that and do something else. And they've, a lot of them have done no, nothing. There are products that have come on that have been very, very good for the industry. And and uh, but you still need you still need a guy or a girl to fit the shoe and put it on. Whether you glue it on, whether you nail it on, whether you screw it on, you need somebody there to a specialist to do it. Because you've got to remember, a horse is travelling when he's travelling at a sub two minute speed. Um, or sub one fifty four or something like that. We're talking trotting here. Trotting standard here. Bridge, yeah. Standard bridge. Um, then, then he can only do that and, and do that consistently if his feet are right and if he's well balanced. Because you, I've seen horses over the years where guys that have done their own shoeing and, and the horse progressively gets worse and worse and worse. The horse's feet are everywhere, they're not balanced up, the nails are not up in his feet, and the shoes or feet all get cracked away. People don't realise no foot no horse. So there's always going to be a demand there for a farrier of some description. And, and someone that can keep the feet in the right order. Like, we only put shoes on a horse, or the majority of times, we put shoes on a horse to get a better service. But, but when you put shoes on a horse, you've then got the responsibility of making sure you don't leave them on too long. And let him overgrow, which a lot of people have been guilty of. The foot overgrows the shoe, the shoe lands on the heel and they get corns and white line trauma and quarter cracks and all sorts of problems. 
then they start and it hurts them when they're running so they start and shift the weight up further up and they don't stride as good it's just so many it's so important the shoeing for for horses and as i said earlier that i had i won a lot of the big races because i got horses that were good horses anyway but i was able to fix their feet up and made them perform at their best so that old saying no foot no horse well, I think that's a, it's a, a good, good uh, point to, to finish up. And so, uh, Carl, thanks very much for, for giving us your time and, and for this podcast. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, we look out for, for our, uh, our next uh, interview uh, to be advised with the next newsletter. Thanks. Very good. Oh, well, yeah, will that be enough? <laughs>